Hey, hey, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Happy live stream day. I bet a lot of you guys are pretty hyped from the trailer, as uh, we certainly are. But it's a little too soon for us to stream about the trailer right away. But we're going to jump on it quickly. We're going to be streaming about it tomorrow at our usual time of 6 Eastern Standard. And we're going to have a couple of guests. Well, we're going to have a guest, Lady Gwen from Radio Westeros. And we're going to have Sean, his first appearance of 2019. And he's excited to get back and talking about Game of Thrones. So we are on a related topic today. Not just the end of Game of Thrones, but more of a focus on a particular character, one of the main characters, Jon Snow. As you can see from the title of this live stream, Aegon III is Jon Snow. And you guys know we love to do these character parallels. We started looking at them, well, quite a long time ago, but we didn't focus on them as a topic until more recently. Before Fire and Blood, we knew we would be doing a lot of these, and Fire and Blood gave us a lot of opportunity, way more than we thought we would. So it's something that we knew we would focus on, but we didn't know that we would focus on it quite this much. And hey, that's just a gift from George. Loving it. It's really fantastic. And I think a lot of people have been aware of a lot of these historical parallels and specifically some of the Aegon III, Jon Snow parallels. There's some pretty basic ones out there that people have caught. They both wear all black. You know, that's a, it's not a big one, but it's something. In the case of John, his eyes are so gray, they're almost black. And in Aegon III's, his eyes are so purple, they're almost black. Yeah, so, you know, small things like that kind of get you started. They kind of lead you to the bigger parallels. For example, the idea that Aegon III's nickname is the Dragon Bane. Well, if you put that in light of Jon Snow eventually rejecting his Targaryen heritage in favor of his Stark heritage, which is how he was raised, and in favor of his duty to the realm, to the Night's Watch, given how he rejected Winterfell from Stannis. Well, in a lot of ways, he's the Dragonbane because he's rejecting or will reject his Targaryen heritage. Now, that's part of where this gets a little hazy is because we're predicting things that are going to come for Jon as much as we are showing parallels in his early life to that of Aegon III's. So, a lot of this is theoretical, but because it's on such solid ground with the details we already know, with so many of them line up, it makes sense that some of the things yet to come will line up really well as well. Now, there's going to be a few TV spoilers in here. I'll, I'll mention them before I throw them out because I know some people are avoiding the TV show entirely. And, well, I can understand that. Uh, you know, most of us are watching the show, so I hope you understand that we occasionally have to bring it up. And some of the predictions that I have are at least a little bit rooted in things that we see on the TV. Not entirely, but we have to take into account what's on TV if we're trying to predict John's arc, even if we have to take that with a lot of grains of salt, because we know the TV is doing things differently, but not 100% differently. So we have to take it into account. That's, uh, that's how I stand on that. So we'll be covering that. We'll be going through these couple of announcements real quick, though, before we get into the meat of it. After that teaser of Jon Snow and Aegon, uh, Aegon III, I hope you guys are excited for more. But a couple of shout-outs first. Thanks to Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' First Sword. And our Dragon Rider patrons, that's Talanys the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Talarius, the Red Dragon with Scales, Horns, and Talons of Midnight Black. 
and Robert IV of House Ardeacor, Burn King of Blazewater Bay, Rider of Atroxus, a black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. We've got new art coming for both of those in the not-too-distant future. We, uh, it's not on our schedule, it's on the artist's schedule, so we can't predict exactly when we'll get it, but we have arranged for it, and, uh, well, we'll be revealing them when they come, hopefully very soon. Reminder that if you listen to us on podcast uh, and don't watch the videos, well, that's fine, nothing wrong with that. It's a lot easier to take in podcasts while driving around and doing chores and stuff, so I certainly understand that. Some people just prefer it that way rather than watching a video. But I want to remind you all again, if you use the ACAST podcast player, again, it's free. There's no ads in it or anything. You can see these images, whether it's the art that we talk about in this episode of Egg on the Third Verse is Jon Snow, or whether it's shots from the trailer, or whether it's Michael Clarfeld's maps or fan art, you can see them on your podcast player. Uh, and it's just really cool to have these, these reference points visually, even while you're listening to a podcast. We have a super chat from Stephen Stark, the uh, Hand of the Queen, and he says, Celtic timepiece. <laughs> that is a reference to Irish wristwatch, of course. Celtic timepiece is easier to say. That is, that's not a tongue twister. Celtic timepiece, Celtic timepiece, Celtic timepiece. Okay, it gets a little harder when you say it fast. All right, so we'll start in the beginning with Aegon Third. And this overview, I'm going to start with an overview of his family life. This is where he is less like John and more like Aegon V, Aegon the Unlikely. And part of that is because, well, we don't have a later life for Jon Snow. John is, what, 15, 16 now? And we have a whole life of Aegon III. And, well, it, was, it wasn't a long life. He only lived to be age 36. But we don't know what John's next 20 years will be like, even if he even has them. He may not survive the series. <laughs> Heck, he's dead right now. So it's, uh, from looking at his whole life, um, it doesn't really work for Jon Snow parallels in that sense, because Jon's life is still, well, <laughs> life slash death is still ongoing. So comparing him to Egg on the Unlikely, let's start there. Egg was the fourth son of a fourth son, right? Egg on the third was the fourth son of a daughter, and Rhaenyra is the only daughter to ever inherit the throne. So inheriting through her is pretty unlikely, right? Given all the pushback against queens. So that's pretty hard to inherit through a queen. She was the only one. Especially because Rhaenyra also had three half-brothers of her own. Aegon, Aemon, and Darren. Well, as we know, that's kind of how why the war broke out. But it's hard to inherit through... Uh, a woman when there are male claimants. That's in generally how it works. Fair. We're not talking about fairness. We're just talking about how it works. Of course, there's another angle to this. If you inherit over so many of your own older family members, well, that implies they died. Uh, either, And it also implies that either they didn't have their own sons or that those sons died too. And in the case of Egg, well, he wasn't really close to Daron, and he hated Arian, and Aemon didn't actually die. He just, you know, took uh, took the black and became a maester, so he was passed over for other reasons. And out of all of them, only one had a son, and that was Arian's one-year-old Magor, who was also passed over. So it's a little different, but we don't know how close Aegon Third was to his older half-brothers. Uh, we know he was a very traumatized kid, but he wasn't traumatized before the war, Right? Uh, so he may have been a little happier before then, may have gotten along with his brothers. They may have had some happy times together before it all went bad. And 
A few other parallels here with, between Aegon III and Aegon V. Both were king for exactly 26 years, give or take a few months. And they were almost 100 years apart. Aegon III was king from 131 to 157. Aegon V was 233 to 259. So 102 years off. The both of them are pro-small folk, which when you're a pro-small folk, that also means you're unpopular with the nobility. So they, they have a double parallel there. And Aegon V wore Aegon III's crown, which was one of the simpler crowns ever made. It was just a simple gold band, a circlet. And that may be George uh, kind of being a little meta there, showing that comparison and showing that they had similar attitudes towards being a king in the first place. Both had five kids, exactly. And both had really awkward marriage situations with those respective kids. This includes rejecting the marriages made for them. All of Egg's sons and one of his daughters rejected their betrothals, while Aegon III was the father of the young dragon, who never married, but likely would have married Dana the Defiant. That was followed by Baylor, who set aside Dana himself and refused to marry anyone, let alone her. And then the princesses in the tower, all that, all that, all that episode. Only one of those three got married. So only one of Aegon III's five children would actually get married. Well, consummate their marriage. Technically, Baylor was married, but it, it doesn't really count. So in both cases, this is so cool. George thought this through really well. The character level world building here is excellent. When we get to the egg on the third, Jon Snow parallels, I'm, I think I'm really going to blow your mind with some of these comparisons. I blew my own mind just looking through these things. It's, it's, it's the same old story with George. You find something, you dig into it, you look for more detail, and you're rewarded. But those rewards are very in level, right? Sometimes you find some cool nuggets and it's fun. Sometimes you find a lot. And sometimes you find an overwhelming amount. And this, this to me, this Jon Snow stuff is in the, in the latter category. It's overwhelming. But a little bit more on Aegon the Third to Aegon the Fifth. With we have these uh, Aegon the Fifth kids marrying for love. In part, this is because he and his wife Betha Blackfoot married for love and deeply loved each other. So it's kind of one of those you emulate your parents sort of situations, right? They were a good example of a loving couple, and their kids saw that and wanted to emulate it. And Aegon III, on the other hand, had too much early life trauma to be a loving person. And maybe it wasn't in his nature in the first place anyway. We're not really sure. But given that only one of his five kids had a healthy relationship, well, you see what I mean, right? It feels pretty authentic. The, these, these kids have lives that very much reflect uh, an influence of their parents. So it's, it's again, I just great job by George here. Now, in terms of Things that weren't so similar, Aegon III seemed to learn to live with his trauma over time. This is kind of a, a reverse parallel here. Aegon III was more traumatized early in life and, well, there was, he, I wouldn't say he got over it. No, he didn't get over it. You can't get over that. But he got more comfortable with it. He got, he learned to live with his trauma. He got more mature, became more in his past, and he, and it wasn't inflamed by new traumas later in life. Well, not that we know of. Aegon V, on the other hand, his life kind of went downhill, sort of. You know, it, uh, he had trouble with the political side of things. He was having the nobles push back against a lot of his reforms. And somehow it all culminated in Summerhall. And there's some, you know, there's definitely theories of Aegon V maybe going a little bit mad or who knows exactly. But it does, it, he didn't, his story doesn't end well. Let's put it that way. And there's some evidence that he was struggling maybe with his mental health or things like that as he got older. It's, it's not entirely clear. 
as we're talking about two different Aegons here, the third and the fifth, well, John might be Aegon the seventh when it's all said and done. Aegon the, uh, we got Aegon the unworthy, Aegon the unlikely, Aegon the unlucky, and Jon Snow could be Aegon the undead or Aegon the unknown because no one knows that he's named Aegon. A lot of cool potential nicknames for uh, John to be if his name is actually Aegon, but he name might not be Aegon. Maybe he'll be Aemon the first or Jaehaerys the third, or we'll see. So that's the overview. Let's go to Aegon's birth and dive into the Jon Snow parallels. And here's a note from Nina Friel from the chat. She says, for what it's worth, Fire and Blood says that Aegon III worshipped his Valerian half-brothers. Okay, good to know. I actually did miss that. I assumed he looked up to them because that's very normal for young, uh, for brothers and sisters to look up to their elders. And they were pretty well accomplished and brave and did a lot of things in a short time before they died. So yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And there's more to this later as well, because Aegon III is going to, like John, sort of push back against some of his heritage. John hasn't done this yet. It's just widely predicted. But Aegon III uh, definitely preferred the, uh, the Valerians, even though he wasn't directly, uh, even though neither of his parents were Valerian. So the beginning of Aegon III's life, he was born in the end of the year 120, which just figures because this is a kid whose life was marked by trauma and the year 120 was called the year of the Red Spring because it was an extremely terrible year filled with deaths and ominous things. So he was like born at the end of all that, <laughs> like the uh, sort of the, the capstone to a terrible year. But his birth itself was a joy, um, even though his life was not joyous. He was Damon and Rhaenyra's first child together and Damon's first son. Damon has had a, you know, tried to have sons before and his previous wife, Lena Villarian, died giving birth to a son who was yet another example of, of an abomination from this era, which there were quite a few. I mean, in this era, there were quite a few of those abominations. Aegon III had three half-brothers, of course, his mother's kids with break bones <laughs> and two half-sisters through his father. So, John himself fits this really well. He was also born during an extremely terrible year. Uh, I'll, I'll go for a little wordplay here. Aegon III's birth may have been a joy. John's birth was not so much a joy as it was at the Tower of Joy. Hmm. John had two half-sisters and three half-brothers. A fun match, minus the fact that they aren't actually his siblings. But in reality, John has one half-sister and one half-brother. Uh, the brother killed not long after birth. In both cases, though, there is some hidden parentage in play. The match is broken, though, when Aegon gets a full-blood brother, Viserys, two, two years later, which means he has four brothers instead of Jon's three brothers. Of course, you could argue Jon tops him by joining the Night's Watch and getting all kinds of brothers. But hey, this isn't a competition. <laughs> the years 122 to 129 are largely glossed over in all our sources, uh, meaning Fire and Blood, The World of Ice and Fire, Princess and the Queen, Rogue Prince, etc. There's just, this is all pre-war build-up stuff, but it's, um, there's just not a lot to say about it. Just a lot of people being born and things like that. But we can make a few uh, assumptions and think about what he might have been doing then. For example, we know his egg hatched and his dragon storm cloud came forth. 
This is probably closer to 129 than 122 since he rode Stormcloud for the first time during the war under emergency circumstances. And uh, if the dragon was bigger, then he there's a decent chance he would have ridden him already. But just a guess. And as an aside, not many more dragons hatch after this point, from what we can tell. Maybe some do and we just don't hear about it, but the ones we do hear about, uh, there's some weirdness to it. Reyna's egg... Uh, as in Bela and Reyna, well, Reyna's first egg hatches and dies, and then she gets another egg, and that hatches and gets her mourning. And then later we have the last dragon, the green dragon that manages to have five eggs, five kids. <laughs> and But Viserys's egg doesn't hatch, and the egg given to Bela and Oakenfist's first kid turns into, turns into that monstrosity we discussed in the last episode. And also, Lena's child, like I mentioned, we have Jahera, who wasn't quite right, and Jaharis, who had extra fingers and toes. This is Egg on the Second's kid, or kids. Then, of course, Visenya, uh, Rhaenyra's kid, who, you know, she yelled, monster, get out, monster. Now, a caveat to that. Uh, on one hand, this may sound like there's a bunch of these things happening all together, all these birth anomalies and these dragons. On the other hand, there's just a lot of Targaryens at this time. So that's a lot of births, a lot of different examples of births. So there's just more opportunity for anomalies. So it isn't necessarily a magical thing going on, but it might be something to look at. Anyway, the point of all this isn't to dive back into these mysteries about births and anomalies and all that. It's just relevant to Aegon III's life and his view on dragons, which of course is not good. He doesn't like dragons. And... All these horrors and phenomena are probably, for him, if we're putting ourselves in his shoes, kind of a, a build-up to much worse things later that come with dragons. Uh, and, of course, his nickname being Dragonbane, because the dragons die out towards the end of his reign, is carries a lot of meanings. Because it's not just about the dragons dying off during his reign, it's also about this personality aspect of his, that he just didn't like them, that he was traumatized by them. Now, John, of course, there's a good chance John gets his own dragon. And Rhaegal would, you know, that seems to be the likely choice because he's green and because of Rhaegar and all that. And so John may be in the same spot, relatively speaking. He may preside over the dragons dying out again. I mean, there'll be other people presiding over it as well, like potentially Danny. But if John is seen as a king figure then, well, that's, you can see that parallel exists pretty clearly. Uh, in the meantime, until John does or doesn't ride a dragon, he has ghost. I wish we knew what color Stormcloud was. That's one of the dragons whose colors aren't told to us, but, I mean, that implies anything from gray to dark gray to white. So, there's a chance Stormcloud and ghost are the same color. Uh, I lean more towards dark gray, because that seems more like a common association for Stormclouds, but it's kind of cool. Anyway, and if it is gray... Then that matches John's eyes, at least. <laughs> That's something. Not a big parallel there, but something. But here's something I think is really cool. The name, Stormcloud. This is pretty subtle on George's part. Well, <clears throat> Vermax, Arax, Tyraxes. His father had Caraxes. His mother had Cyrax. But he went Stormcloud. Uh, which is, now those names are Valyrian. Those are generally, we know Cyrax for sure is the name of a Valyrian god. And Valyrian, Meraxes, Vagar, Valyrian gods. So, 
He rejected that side of his heritage. He went for the Valerian naming convention. Sea Smoke, Storm Cloud, Morning Light, and Moon Dancer. Kind of these weather nature things instead. And that's just one of many examples of Aegon rejecting his dragony heritage and uh, going towards the other side. So, of course, uh, for John, that's a little clearer, or in some ways, and less clear in others, because he hasn't even learned <laughs> about his heritage yet. So, we'll have to wait and see. Also interesting is just how well Bela and Reyna parallel Sansa and Arya. Think about it this way. Bela, I think some of the Bela-Arya parallels have already come out. But just think about them in, in terms of personality. Bela is kind of wild and willful. Reyna is sweet and worships the Seven and spends the whole war in the veil. <laughs> like, how, hello. That's very much like Sansa. And those two are the ones who present Daenera, the orphan. Mm, a little on the nose there. To uh, Aegon Third during the so-called cattle show of brides. And I wonder if that's how it'll go for John. You know, John, uh, after his return from, presum presumably a uh, return from death, he'll be uh, maybe not so eager to marry anyone, even Daenerys. Uh, and maybe he won't want to be touched. Maybe he won't want to be in, you know, have human contact, which Egg on the Third has 100%. He didn't like to be touched. He didn't like intimacy. He didn't like any of that stuff. So that really lines up with John, at least a likely outcome for John. And it's not like John was big into women in the first place. Remember his his opening scenes with Benjen where he's like, I'm not going to sire any bastards. And how he was hesitant to and guilty about his relationship with Ygritte. And I mean, if, if Ygritte hadn't been aggressive, they never would have slept together <laughs> because John wasn't going to push that. Uh, so it just John isn't isn't the kind of person that, you know, pursues women. He's just not that kind of guy. And that's a very much a rejection of his Targaryen heritage. And Aegon III, the same. Look at all these things about Aegon III, who, just a quick list of things that show how little he is a Targaryen. Look at all these things that Targaryens would do that he didn't do. He doesn't like dragons, obviously. I already put that one out, right? Doesn't eat or drink to excess, which is a really common thing among Targaryens. Doesn't sleep around. Doesn't abuse his authority. Uh, certainly seems more cold than fiery, right? Like that's the, the personality trait for a lot of Targaryens is the short temper. Danny has that fire. John even has some of it. Viserys certainly had. Ares, oh my God, right? These, these, a lot of these characters are just overwhelming with their temper. Now, not all of them, right? Baylor the Blessed, no temper as far as we know. Uh, Baylor Breakspear, also no temper as far as we know. But it's still pretty common. And even those characters I named that weren't fiery temper losers, <laughs> temper losers, <laughs> weren't like the sullen cold type like Aegon Third is. But that's very much like John, and a bit like Ned Stark too. And those are also things true about John, right? As a Lord Commander, he, I mean, Lord Commanders don't eat and drink to excess in general anyway. They don't have anyone to sleep around with. But you can see, but the abusing of his authority part. John has pushed changes that the that the Night's Watch doesn't like. But I wouldn't call that abusing his authority. He's not benefiting himself. He's not like making himself, enriching himself or making himself the center of attention like a lot of uh, Targaryen kings or say Robert Baratheon might. So I really think that's cool. I think that's a really excellent job of George. But we're just getting started here. <laughs> this is just the beginning of the Jon Snow egg on the third parallels. We've got so much more. 
A real quick uh, couple super chats from Philip Borer. You guys rock. Thoughts on the trailer, he asked. Well, Philip, if you missed the beginning, we're going to be talking about the trailer tomorrow at our same time of 6 p.m. Eastern Standard, 11 GMT. So that is for Wednesday. So we'll be giving you all sorts of thoughts on the trailer then. From Tommy Pappas, big super chat. Get well soon, Ashea. That's right, Ashea is laid up. Um, she is on the other side of the camera doing all her good work again. But uh, she is battling um, some, uh, had dental some uh, surgery. dental surgery. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I said illness. Dental surgery. And, you know, that's no fun. Everyone's, everyone has pain associated, associated with dental visits. So, yeah. Wish her the best. All right. So let's talk about the outbreak of war. Since we don't have a whole lot of detail on his, you know, life from two to nine years old, actually eight. So he's eight when the war starts. A lot of the sources, funny, a lot of the sources have this wrong. They say he's nine when the war starts, but that is incorrect because he was born at the last few days of the year 120, which means he turns nine at the end of the year 129, not uh, during. So that would also make him only 10 years old when the war ends. Now, John is, of course, much older than that. 14 when the War of Five Kings breaks out. But the war is proceed the way the war proceeds, the War of Five Kings versus the Dance of the Dragons, well, they have a lot in common on a personal level, how the war impacts them personally, that is. So again, Aegon III's four brothers are killed, though it turns out one didn't actually die, but he won't learn that for, you know, three more years. Uh, and for John, it's kind of similar. He thinks his three brothers are killed and is one of his sisters. And actually, two didn't die. And the sister. None of them died. Only Rob actually died. But John still hasn't learned any of that. He's not sure about Arya. He was hopeful that was her, the girl in gray on a dying horse, but it wasn't. And Brandon, but Brandon Rickon are alive and he hasn't learned that yet. Uh, so that's going to be a big deal when he does learn it. And of course, I've mentioned the, the vibe of Sansa spending the, the war in the Vale, which is just, you know, so much like uh, Reyna and... Uh, spending her time in the veil that whole time. Now, just just for fairness's sake, some major differences here as well. John never knew his mother, right? And Rhaenyra is the number one influence on Aegon III, most likely. He spent most of his life by her side. And John doesn't see any of the war of Five Kings firsthand while Aegon III is right in the midst of it. Not necessarily at the front lines of battle, but he gets the news right away. He hears things as his mother does. And both of them do get a taste of action, though. Not necessarily the way they had planned, but they do get a taste of it. Next one up here is Rook's Rest. Uh, that's a, one of the first early battles of the war. Uh, Rhaenys, the queen who never was, she kind of semi-sacrifices herself to take out Aegon II, which to me is there's a little bit of Danny vibes here, where possible that Danny will... I don't think Jon's going to kill her. I don't think Azor Ahai plays out that way. No. I don't, for one thing, I don't think John would do that. For one thing, I don't think George is going to write the story that way. For another thing, I don't think that's the way Danny would do it either. I don't think. I think if Danny is is if there's any sort of Danny Danny's death is is in the cards at all, I think it's going to be her choice to die. In other words, I think she will sacrifice herself to save humankind. She won't do it for John. She won't do it for any person, any single person. She'll do it for the realm. It's more like. She'll be like a Jesus figure where she is taking on all the sin of mankind or all the problems or, or threats to mankind and giving her life up to prevent that from happening. So the, the, the take here is that Rhaenys is trying to do the same thing. She's trying to and maybe end the war in a stroke by killing Aegon II, even though there's no chance she survives because she's taken on two dragons, one of which is bigger than hers. And 
Here's something that Aegon was a witness to, was the aftermath of that. He's there, almost certainly, when Corlys Velaryon curses out Rhaenyra for not being there herself. The people at Rook's Rest asked Rhaenyra to come save them, and she sent Rhaenys. So, that's, which is Corlys' wife. And so he was very sad that his wife was killed, and he yelled, it should have been you, at Rhaenyra. Which, you know, Aegon may have been witness to. Now, where else have we heard, it should have been you, in Jon Snow's presence? Hmm, that's painful, isn't it? Catelyn yelling, it should have been you. Well, she didn't yell, but she said it to Jon, you know, over Bran's body. So, yikes, that's rough. But Aegon III didn't have this directed at him. He had it, it was directed at his mother. Still, the vibe is, is similar. And the way, if Danny does do this sort of thing, if Danny does sacrifice herself for humankind, John may be the one to live in trauma afterwards, much like Aegon III, thinking it should have been me. He should have been the one to sacrifice himself. Because that's how John is, isn't he? John takes responsibility for everything. John puts himself in the thick of danger. John always thinks it should have been him. John doesn't think of his own safety. John puts other people first. He's very big on duty and responsibility. So I could, I could really see that eating him up afterwards, being like, why am I alive? Why didn't I die with my friends? Why didn't, you know, why him? Next up is the gullet. The gullet was a really, really big deal because this is Aegon's first real firsthand trauma. Certainly hearing about his brother uh, killed and then his relative... Rainey's killed. Those were those were harsh, but firsthand he gets basically the same thing with himself getting in the thick of it and another one of his brothers dying, and that's just hard to imagine. So just picture that. Picture him being there each time the news is delivered to his mother. So not only does he sit there and and it crushes him personally because one of his brothers is killed, but he has to see how his mother reacts to it too and has to share her pain. And, you know, when you're a young boy, your mother, especially a, your mother who's a queen, is going to be this powerful, authoritative figure. And for a lot of people, that's, you know, that's their stability. That's their rock. Your mom can be that for a lot of people. For some people, it's the dad. For some people, it's both. But Damon, uh, he wasn't around much. He was off fighting in the war and, and Rhaenyra was not. So she was clearly a bigger influence, at least, in, at least as far as day to day, if not overall. And so this last time um, when he is going to have more bad news delivered later when more of his, when another of his brothers die and then later his father, but all of this is going to be a little irony to that. And because he's not even supposed to be there. Yeah. Cue the, the clerk's reference. I'm not even supposed to be here today because at the beginning of the battle of the gullet, no one knew it was about to happen except the invasion fleet that was headed for Dragonstone and King's Landing. Bad, bad luck. They're trying to send Aegon and Viserys away from the danger. So there's, they say, hey, get in some ships. I think it was seven ships. Send them off to the free cities to go hide. Come back when the war is done. Of course, what actually happens is they just run right into that invasion fleet. Horrible bad luck timing, and it's like seven ships versus hundreds. And sure, the dragons come out and a big battle happens, but the dragons don't know what, exactly where everyone is. And by the end of it, Aegon III has to escape on his own. 
And this is really bad. There's double trauma here because he has to abandon his brother and he thinks for so long after that his brother is dead. But also the, the ride itself is terrifying. He climbs up on his dragon. It's the first time he's ever ridden a dragon and he has to get all the way back to Dragonstone. And meanwhile, arrows and bolts are flying everywhere. He was probably nearly hit because his dragon was hit several times and his dragon isn't big. In fact, he may have been hit, and it just isn't mentioned. But, I mean, it wouldn't have been anything too bad, because uh, that would have been mentioned if he had taken an arrow in the arm or something. But he's sitting there flying on his dragon, who has a huge bolt sticking out of his neck. Like, what? Imagine that. That's terrifying. He's a 9 or 10-year-old kid at this point. Actually, I guess he's, he's still, he's probably only 9 at this point. So, how terrifying is that? He's, he might, he's, he's thinking he might not even make it. So... I tell you what, one of the few things that might look good for him as far as dragons go is how brave his dragon was. That dragon saved his life. It, it gave his life to save him and died, you know, pretty quickly after making it back to Dragonstone with all those wounds. And so it's kind of ironic, right? They're trying to keep him out of harm's way and, and end up sending him into the midst of this huge enemy. So where's the Jon Snow parallel here? It's even bigger. John was sent to the wall to keep him away from Robert, <laughs> to keep him his secrets safe, sending him to the wall right before the White Walkers come. <laughs> yeah, whoops. Okay, so you see where I'm going with that. This is very similar irony of keeping him out of harm's way by sending him into the middle of the biggest possible danger that was available at that moment. And both of them come out ahead, yet very traumatized. So uh, for both of them, though, the worst comes later. The, that was really traumatizing, that ride. And his brother, another one of his brothers, dies during that battle. And he thinks a second brother dies. He thinks Viserys dies. And uh, Gisarius definitely does die. And Lucerius was already dead by Vagar's and Aemon's hands uh, several months before. So now, to be fair, it wasn't Ned who sent John to the Wall. He just jumped on the idea when John suggested it himself. It's pretty similar, not the exact same, but man, that that's one that I've I, I was really surprised to find that one. Pretty cool. It, you can kind of understand why Aegon never wanted to fly again, why he never wanted to hatch a dragon uh, and have another dragon himself. But this doesn't actually explain his fear of dragons. This explains his fear of being on one. Of flying one, but it doesn't explain his fear of the actual dragons. That, of course, is coming pretty soon, though. Now, of course, we have a similar thing with John. Throughout his whole arc, how guilty does he feel for not being able to help his family? In fact, he runs off to try to help them, and his friends bring them bring him back before he can break his oath fully there. And I guess his version of going into battle in this case, is defending the wall against the Fens, maybe, and then later the full wildling army. And in both cases, many of his brothers died. But meanwhile, he's constantly just sitting there on the wall, getting news of different members of his family dying, which is kind of like Aegon sitting there at the Red Keep with his mother, just every once in a while getting more news of one of his family members dying in this terrible war that shouldn't be happening. It's a civil war in both cases. And Marvin Martin says, Aegon did not allow his wife to have her dragon around? I thought it died in the dragon pit. Well, 
Uh, Jahara, yes, he didn't, um, at first he didn't have that kind of control. Like he, obviously he could, he, he was able, as the king, he was able to say, I don't want that around. People didn't necessarily have to listen to him because he hadn't reached his, uh, age of, or he hadn't reached the age of 16 yet, but he didn't want the dragons around the Red Keep. He made Viserys leave his dragon egg even away from the Red Keep after the strange hatchling of Bela and, uh, Oakenfist. But yes, it did die in the dragon pit, and your question is very well-timed because the next question, or rather the next section up here is the storming of the dragon pit. So, let's talk about the storming of the dragon pit. This is a really unusual event. There's a lot of unrest in King's Landing, and there's chaos and fear because... Uh, Rhaenyra is not a good ruler, and she's not handling King's Landing very well. Her counselors aren't helping much. They're not good either, except for the Sea Snake, but no one really listens to him at this point. And there's um, the Shepherd, and he's causing, uh, he's preaching against the Targaryens, preaching against the dragons, and there's these other uh, people popping up, doing their thing all around King's Landing. It's chaos everywhere. Not uh, not a good place to be. Kind of reminds me of maybe what we're going to see uh, near towards the end game of A Song of Ice and Fire, whether or not there'll be chaos because of Aegon the Sixth reign or his or the slaying of lies, or because the others have taken King's Landing entirely, or because they're coming to King's Landing and that's causing chaos because everybody knows they're coming. Same kind of fear you would have on a large scale when everybody knows a big army is coming and they're all terrified of it and they don't have anything they can do about it. This was kind of similar because part of the buildup of the Storm of the Dragon Pit is knowing that they the, the, the populace is doesn't have confidence in Rainier's ability to defend the city, especially with a lot of the key war leaders not there. <laughs> and uh, either they're elsewhere or they're dead. And... Well, as far as how this goes from Egg on the Third's perspective, you know, he's surely hearing about all this stuff and he's hearing his mother kind of downplay it. She's, this is her, she's, this is where she's a lot like, well, she's a lot like Cersei in a lot of ways, but she's really like Cersei here uh, after the riots where she still doesn't take it that seriously, even though people are, are, she, I mean, she takes it seriously, but she doesn't, she thinks it's something that'll just kind of blow over. She doesn't take action to prevent it from happening again. Uh, the Tyrells do later by bringing the food that people need. And there is later peace comes to King's Landing in this timeline as well because of, <laughs> well, that's another story. But peace does eventually come through uh, after the, the chaos. Anyway, so we have all this fear and panic and the dragon pit gets stormed by followers of the shepherd, something like 10,000 people. And it's chaos and... There's Rainier wants to do something about it, but she most but she like like Cersei's attitude mostly thinks it's just something that will die down. She's not worried that that these quote unquote rats or mice or whatever she calls them will take down a dragon. Mushroom says, ah, they can you know you get enough of them on there and they can take out anything. You know enough of them enough of a little little creature can take out a big creature and. Joffrey, young Joffrey, who is now the heir, ha agrees with Mushroom. He's very worried about his dragon, Tyraxes, and runs off to steal Cyrax. And 
You wonder what Aegon's thinking. We know what happens here. Joffrey flies off on Cyrax. Cyrax doesn't like Joffrey being on her and flips around and swings around and, and ejects him and that kills him. So he falls to his death. And that, yeah, so he loses another brother. And this one had to, I don't know if it hurt more than the others, but it just, it probably seemed the most preventable, perhaps. Maybe Lucerius and Arax was just as preventable because that was kind of bad luck. And even Aemon's mother harangued him for doing that. So maybe that was, and that was the first one. So maybe that was more painful. But this one was just so... It just didn't have to happen. Joffrey didn't have to get on that dragon. He shouldn't have gotten on that dragon. There wasn't much he could do, even if he did. I mean, really just tragic in the sense that it was just so worthless. It was a meaningless death. And it just gets worse from there. For whatever reason, Cyrax just gets madder and madder and attacks the crowd. And the crowd storms the dragon pit and Dreamfire breaks through the roof and it collapses, and there's just so much death and destruction. And it might be like the wall collapsing. It might be the best parallel we have to the wall coming down. And of course, we don't know how that's going to happen, whether the entire hundred leagues of wall come down, or whether just a big section opens up and they flow, the undead flow through that. Or something else entirely. But I do think it's likely the wall comes down one way or the other and the undead pour through it. And, well, the it's what's interesting is just how these figures, this, the, the populace, the commoners who swarm the dragons here, it's interesting how much they resemble the undead in that they are a mob that doesn't have any care for itself. It doesn't. None of these people who... They, so many of these people who kill a dragon just die themselves minutes later or die in the process of doing Like the Burning Knight, this this guy that kills, uh, was it Morgul or Shrykos, who is like described as being fully on fire as he's killing this dragon. And these people are suicidal, right? They're just maddened. And that's why there's some of these theories out there. I saw a theory, uh, I can't remember where I saw it. It might have been from um, uh, Dan Drew, a.k.a. Dan Koisman, who told me about, maybe he's just the one who told me about it, but mentioned a theory that someone put basilisk blood in the fountains, in the public water at King's Landing prior to the storming of the dragon pit, which would explain why they all went so crazy and suicidal, because that's what basilisk blood does. That's what, remember, that's what Jaken Jaken feeds to Weiss's dog that makes the dog turn on him and kill him. You know, like, what would make a, a dog turn on their master like that? Well, bas basilisk blood would. So... It's a cool theory. I, I don't have much more to say about it other than because uh, I don't know who would do it. I mean, it would probably be someone like Larry Strong. That would be like the best culprit, probably. Especially because Larry Strong was working for the Greens almost the entire time until very near the end. And at this point, he was still working for the Greens. He was still hiding Aegon II. So that fits really well. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of cool, right? The, the storming of the Dragon Pit um, as a loose parallel to the wall, uh, to the undead storming the wall. Maybe, maybe it's more like the wildlings attacking the wall, but there's definitely some fruitful, fertile ground for parallels there. Now, what happens next, right? After the collapse of the dragon pit, after the death of Cyrax, and after the f more danger from the commoners and more anarchy in King's Landing, Rhaenyras decides she has to take off. She has to leave. She wants to get another dragon, and her advisors say it's not safe anymore. So they're on the run uh, with a very small group. It kind of reminds me of 
John with Corrin and those rangers desperately fleeing and in the advance of the wildlings. Um, and since I just mentioned the wildlings is sort of a parallel to storming the wall, well, that kind of parallel, that kind of continues the parallel here. Rhaenyra has to sell her crown and it's just a, it's a great big fall from, from a great heights. And Aegon III's with her this whole time, of course. I've been calling him Aegon III this whole time, of course. He is just Aegon the Younger at this point. He's not crowned, but I'm going to keep calling him Aegon III for simplicity's sake, so we know who he is. <laughs> so we know we'll have all these Aegon, all this confusion with all these different Aegons. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a parallel there. Um, and then we even have sort of the, the split off where uh, Stone Snake goes his own way to try to help them and uh, to try to d divert them where the Manderleys leave to go to go back to White Harbor to raise another army. It's not really that close. But, you know, as we go through all these things, throw out what we can, and you judge whether that's a good parallel or not. I don't think that one's too strong, but so many of these are. Now, so the moving forward, Rhaenyra's life doesn't last much longer. Here comes the, the main reason that Aegon III seems to be traumatized by dragons. And hey, it's something that nobody can really imagine. Um, I mean, you there's people who have certainly out there who've witnessed their uh, the death of a loved one or of, of a parent, but not via dragon, not being eaten alive by a dragon. That's just a totally uh, unearthly experience. And he's the first one to realize what's happening. Remember, there's that line where he understands that they've been trapped and he yells at his mother to run away. And it's, but it's too late. It's way, way too late. And this is, just a culmination of all this huge trauma. He's already lost his brother. He's our, our brothers uh, in a variety of horrible ways. And father has already died by this point. I kind of skipped over that. We've already, we were already past the point where Aemond and Damon had their battle over the God's eye. Battle over where the D belongs, right? That's an old joke I'm bringing back. Aemon with a D on the end. Aemon with a D on the front. So they're just arguing about where the D goes. It's a it's an oversexed conversation. <laughs> and so he's already lost his father at this point, too. He, did, he wasn't witness to it, but he heard the news about it. And it was probably kind of rough in its own way, even without even before the death, because his... Rainier and Damon kind of had a falling out through through letters, but still it was a falling out. Damon was really not happy at all about how she ordered the death of, of Nettles. That was really uncool. And uh, then we have, you know, the, the, the scene of Alan Valerian uh, doing his sea smoke thing and, and running off to prove his loyalty. And by the way, Stormcloud is kind of the Alan Valerian of dragons being loyal to uh, his his master uh, dying to get him home. But you wonder what he thought about that too. Did Aegon side with his mother and say, yeah, don't trust those bastards? I kind of don't think so. It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing he would do um, because he was pro small folk. I don't think he would be one of those people that had that that uh, belief about bastards. But it's entirely possible he he got that from his mother because clearly his mother had this paranoia about bastards, this this uh, view, this prejudice, and maybe it passed on to him. Egg had it too, remember? Egg was prejudiced against bastards because of Makar. And it was only because of working with Dunk that he got over that. He realized that his parents taught him wrong. It was just kind of learned behavior that he never questioned, and then he did question it. 
So uh, maybe the same thing happened for Agon the Third. Maybe he didn't like bastards because his mother didn't like them, and then he kind of eventually thought it thought it through on his own and was like, "Hey, wait, why didn't my mom was wrong?" Something like that, maybe. Now, how do we compare this to John? Well, of course, John's mother died long before uh, he. I mean, he doesn't even know who she was. In a sense, you have a little of that in play where his lack of his mother having a mother figure growing up. And in fact, he had a kind of an anti-mother figure a bit in Cat. So that was a different kind of upbringing, but still a negative thing. Uh, it's not trauma necessarily. Some psychologists would say what Cat did to John is counts as trauma or uh, not counts as trauma. It counts as something that could cause trauma. And so that's just, that's a, that's a debate for psychologists, I suppose. But uh, it still kind of rings familiar that John suffered some of these losses too outside of his own family. Like John had to kill Corin himself. And that wasn't fun. That was that was terrible. He had to kill someone he looked up to, someone that was a hero, even though Corin, Corin was sacrificing himself will, willingly and forced the issue. Remember, if, if it was just John's, if it was just John's choice to cut uh, a kneeling Corin's head off, I don't think he'd do it. But Corin attacked him. And John had to defend himself. Corn forced the issue by saying, you know, to make it look authentic. And of course, Corn had a ghost attack him too, because he attacks John and ghost is going to defend his master. But you could see some of the, some of the similarities there with the, uh, the loss of a key female figure and guilt over that. But there's, uh, but this Egret stuff, there's actually another comparison here that I'll, uh, I'll get to in a minute. I saw one one comparison that points to the possibility of considering John himself as a dragon, which he is in a sense, and he killed his own mother. He didn't. I mean, that's a shitty way to look at childbirth, but it's not a wrong way to look at how people might think of themselves and their own guilt. If John, you know, John doesn't know his mother died in childbirth, but he's the kind of guy that might think of it that way. Uh, like Tywin tries to blame Tyrion for that. And Cersei does the same. It's not his fault. Clearly, you can't blame an infant for that. That's ridiculous. But if you tell a baby or a young kid something enough, they will believe it as false as it may be. So he may, you know, this guilt may be there. John uh, may find himself feeling that way. He certainly has plenty of guilt over other things. Let's, let's pause here with the chronology and just take a look at their personality for a minute uh, as we're about halfway through here. Taking responsibility and facing danger. That's a huge part of John's arc. He's very aggressive about that. He's very dutiful. Aegon III didn't necessarily seem irresponsible, but he wasn't like an aggressive leader either. He was a, he was a kid with no agency, with all this stuff happening around him that he couldn't do anything about. Which is sort of like John being stuck on the wall. Uh, he had, being unable to do anything about what's happening to his family. And they're also... I don't know. We don't know how Aegon faces danger other than in the gullet. I don't, it doesn't seem like he was an unbrave person. And later we'll see him face other kinds of dangers head on. I'm not talking about war, but you'll see what I mean when we get there. And of course, we're, they're both serious. They're both sullen. They're both, as I said earlier, they're both shy with women. Uh, here's, uh, here's some art. Um, Ashea is pulling up some art of Aegon III when he's older on the Iron Throne. And you can just look. This is, Ashea said herself, this, this is kind of a creepy shot of him. And I agree. He's This looks kind of... Just creepy. That's fine. That's the best. That's a good word. We don't need another uh, another description. 
And to me, that makes me think of, well, you think about all his terrible trauma and the fact that John is dead. I mean, <laughs> think of, imagine if we're thinking deep into these parallels, think then this character looks creepy here. Well, picture John as the undead. That's creepy. So I don't know. That's, that's, how, I, uh, that's how I look at this. I think of him as uh, a comparison to John being undead. Aegon III's near-death experience was, trauma, was, was one of the many forms of trauma he had. John, actual death, right? That's, we have yet to see how that's going to impact him. But there's a lot of predictions out there. He'll be more wolfish. He'll be more distant. He'll be less human. All of these things sound like Aegon III, don't they? He, Aegon III stared at the sky a lot. That's kind of interesting. Maybe John will too. Maybe John will do that after he loses his dragon. Now that's building a theory on top of a theory, which I don't like to do too much, but heh, it's worth throwing out there, I think. So just be looking whenever you see, like, I, I feel like there's so many of these egg on the third parallels as I was taking notes for this. I was up till seven in the morning wrapping this up and I feel like I didn't wrap it up. I feel like there's got to be more. Uh, there's got to be more parallels that I missed. So I encourage you all to pour over the text as much as I have. Valar, re maybe, maybe not as much as I have, but <laughs> do it on your own uh, a lot. And Valar, reread us and see where you get, because I think you'll find some fun stuff. And hopefully, if you find anything that I didn't find, well, share it with me, please, because I would love to add more to the list. So let's take a quick uh, mid-roll break to give some shout-outs and say thanks to the people who make this show possible. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole reason that we can just drop a... break our schedule a little bit and do a live stream on less than 48 hours notice is because of Patreon, because of y'all's support. It's... You know, otherwise I would have a job and have to work around uh, some sort of nine to five schedule, which would, who knows when we would be able to get things out. So I just can't, you know, words aren't enough, but it's all I have right now is to say how appreciative we are. All right. So let me give thanks to our blood riders. That's, uh, that includes Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragon bone hilt. Kohel Koei, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragon bone bow. And Kakavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. Also, thanks to our sellsword captains. We get, the sellsword captains get shout outs every three to four episodes, it depends. And we also, they kind of rotate with the Ironborn captains level and the Northern Champions level. You get these shout outs, you get episodes seven days early, that's scripted episodes only. And you get some other bonuses that are uh, outlined at patreon.com slash history of Westeros. So thanks to Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, Captain of the Weirwood Wanderers, to Long Lives, Quick Deaths, Cold Beer, and Warm Women, Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, Captain of the Red Tide, Resistance is Futile, Chiron Callsbane, Captain of the Stone Shields, The Torrent Breaks Upon the Stone, Hema Helminth, Captain of the Whispering Children, Dead Men Tell No Secrets, Shepard, the Shepherd of Essos, All Men Are Sheep Before the Shepherd, Heir to the Whispering Children. This Shepherd has two hands, unlike the Shepherd uh, who storm helped storm the Dragon Pit, who only had one. <laughs> Lady Lajara Dajo is the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep, Arboreal Point, Captain of the All-Female Wailing Widows, Women and Children First. Cody the Crimson is Bastard of Bracken, Captain of the Red Waste Exiles, and Recruiter of the Free Folk. Cameron the Hammer of Hornwood is Captain of the English Lions, with the motto, Honor is the Reward of Virtue. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune is Captain of the Shadow Wolves. Our steel is cold, our vengeance colder. And Black Alex Sand is the Bastard of Spears, leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. If you are own a copy of Fire and Blood, um, 
physical, but don't haven't listened to it yet. I highly recommend that as a means of Valar rereading. You can get two free downloads from Audible. Go to historyofwesteros.com, and on the right sidebar, there's a variety of links. One of them gets you to Audible, and you can get two free downloads with a trial subscription. And you get to keep those downloads, even if you don't keep the trial subscription. But if you do keep the trial subscription, hey, you get access to a huge library that's always growing. And they're always offering specials and freebies and things like that. So uh, it's a pretty, uh, pretty good deal. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about the Regency. So the war itself... Now, remember, as you guys are probably aware, unless this is one of your first History of Westeros podcasts, we are working on a Dance of the Dragons collaboration with Radio Westeros. In fact, we had a Skype call tying up some loose ends with that regard uh, just before this. And that's also how we were uh, settled f down with Lady Gwyn coming on the show tomorrow to talk about the trailer. Uh, so we have written... Approximately 7,000 words of a planned roughly 10 to 11 for the first episode. So we're, we're doing pretty well. Pretty good progress there. Uh, that's about, mm, I'll call that two-thirds. It's about three-quarters of the writing, but we have more uh, non-writing stuff to do as well. So that's uh, pretty cool. Exciting. All right, let's move on. Let's go to the Regency. Now, not this this parallel runs so deep between John and Aegon Third that even the supporting cast have parallels to each other. Uh, I'm going to give it a big example and a small example. I'll start with a small example, and then we'll work our way up to the big one. The small one is who was John's first nemesis upon arrival at the Wall? Alice or Thorne, right? Easy. Who was Aegon III's similar nemesis when he first started becoming king? It's this guy named Gareth Long, a master at arms who was brutal and treated him in, with a lot of the same methods that we see Alistair Thorne use. Uh, exposure, a mockery, uh, just being really harsh. He, he's from that, like, beat them up as much as possible to bring them up school of thought, which I think is a pretty terrible way to go about it. Not always, but... If it works, it works. But it wasn't working with John, and it wasn't working with Sam, and it wasn't working with a lot of the other brothers. And Gareth Long's methods weren't working with Aegon the Third either. So there's one. It's it's one method. It's one thing to have a method that works, uh, but there's another thing to have a method that works sometimes and try to use it all the time. That's that's inflexible. And this Gareth Long character really reminds me of Alistair Thorne because of this. Even the supporting character part goes even farther here. We have a supporting character for a supporting character for this parallel because what did Alistair Thorne do when Sam showed up? He had Rast just beat him. He just hit him over and over. And eventually that got to John. John was tormented by Sam getting beaten and they weren't even friends yet. Contrast that to Aegon III's whipping boy, Gaiman Palehair, who was his best friend. They started hitting game and pale hair to get Aegon to re respond more to training with the sword and shield. And it worked. Now I'm not saying Alistair Thorne's methods worked, but he, John worked harder at training when he had to defend Sam. Remember the, the scene where Alistair just sends people at John, uh, with Sam behind him. He's like, you gotta get through John to, 
get to Sam, you know? This is just really similar to what Gareth Long was doing to Egg on the Third here. So that's a minor one. But here's a major one. Here's another piece of here's a piece of art that we used last week. And I'm not sure where it applies better. It just it applies better. We don't have to decide. It's it applies really well to both. And it even you can even tell what I'm talking about. That this art of Cregan Stark with Aegon the Third. Everybody talked about how this has some Ned Stark vibes. Well, hello, Ned Stark, Jon Snow. This is our parallel we're working with right now. Ned Stark, Jon Snow, Cregan Stark, Aegon the Third. Boom. Of course, we know in Jon's life, there's sort of two characters that fit this, uh, that match this parallel here, because Cregan also has a lot to do with Stannis. Right? Or has a lot in common with Stannis. We talked about that during the Hour of the Wolf episode as well. That parallel hardly needs to be made. It just jumps out at you. If you didn't notice it, once you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, that's really obvious. And a lot of people just caught it right away because it's, it's pretty straightforward. So think about this comparison. What does Cregan Stark do? He comes down and sort of takes over, but he doesn't make too many changes he just tries to get people to do things right he's like all right this is the new king we're following the law you know some of his things were a bit arbitrary a bit overbearing but he didn't make new laws he didn't all he did was dispense justice he wasn't trying to rule contrast that to stannis showing up to win the battle of winter to win the battle of the wall save the wild to, to defeat the wildlings and save castle black which is pretty similar to Cregan swooping down on King's Landing and kind of his men were everywhere. He, he was he was sort of pushing his weight around, but not really take not really forcing them, but sort of forcing them, demanding they do things, but not ordering it. Stannis wanted the Night's Watch to get their acting gear. He's like, pick a new leader. Let's get let's do this. Get going, guys. Figure this out. Uh, but he was mostly honorable about it. You know, he pushed his will, but he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't, dem- well, he kind of did. He he, <laughs> he ordered them to make a decision, but it, he didn't force them to pick a certain candidate. So he w- he definitely used his authority, but he didn't go so far as to pick the candidate for them, which would have been, that would have definitely been going too far. Arguably, he went too far anyway, but so did Cregan Stark. Arguably, Cregan Stark went too far, right? These parallels are just overwhelming, Right. So I really think the Hour of the Wolf is a slam dunk parallel to Stannis showing up at the Wall. You've got so much of the same things. Even you even have Cregan listening to Aegon, uh, even while other people aren't. Even while other c- counselors are not listening to Aegon. And the same thing's happening with uh, with John. John Stannis was with John for the most part. Like, yeah, sure, they they had their back and forth. They argued, but Stannis respected John and wasn't trying and was definitely trying to push him around a little bit, but had respect for him in the way he did it. Meanwhile, John's new subordinates really didn't like the orders he was giving. Uh, they were doing them for the most part and, you know, until they murdered him. But you know, they were just unhappy with so many of his decisions and would have gone against them if they could. Whereas Egan the Third, they were able to go against them because he wasn't technically in charge, even though he was king. He was just too young to uh, be in his majority. So one of the early things that happens uh, in the aftermath of the war is Egan the Third is betrothed to Jahera, uniting the two branches together, right? Uh, uniting the Tar- Targaryen branches together. Now that's that's vaguely like John and Danny marrying, but that's not really where I'm going with this. Most likely, Jahera was murdered, pushed out a window and dying on the spikes of the dry moat. And she didn't die right away. She lingered in pain for quite a while before dying, which reminds me of Ygritte. 
She was shot during the Fens attack on the wall, and John found her still alive. And it would have probably been more merciful if she would already be dead, and she couldn't get to say, you know nothing, Jon Snow, to him as he's dying, so we could all shed a tear. But hey, that's why George did that, to, <laughs> to, uh, to make a tragic moment, memorable moment for us all. Now, if um, Aegon, thinking about Aegon and his guilt here. Now, he wouldn't have been close to Jahera. They were betrothed, but he wasn't close to anyone. So you wonder if maybe he feels a little guilt. Because, yeah, we know that it was probably Unwin Peak's doing. Jahera probably didn't jump. She was probably pushed. But the official story is that she jumped. And, yes, many people in King's Landing, even the commoners, were upset and suspected foul play. But Aegon, being a kid who takes a lot of responsibility on himself, might have thought that... It was partly his fault because he didn't spend any time with her. Maybe she felt rejected or who, who knows? He may not have thought it his fault at, at all, but I could see it happening. And this is, to me, that would be very, if, if that's the case, that's pretty similar to John feeling this guilt over Igrit. Even though they had very little power to prevent it, it's still you know, something they would have wanted to have taken action about. It's the, kind, it's the thing that a responsible person does. They think, what could I have done? And a hyper-responsible person does this too much, <laughs> where they think uh, they put all that, they, they put too much burden on themselves. They think, I could have done more, when really they couldn't have. I'm not sure what John could have possibly done to keep a grit alive. By the way, that's another comparison I, I kind of passed over, is John fleeing from a grit getting shot up full of arrows and his horse getting shot full of arrows. And he afterwards, he's not even sure how he got on the horse. And part of the part of his ride, his, his, his flight back to Castle Black on this horse that's dying. Kind of like Aegon III rushing back on Stormcloud and his dying dragon shot through arrows as well. And he does, you know, and we don't have a whole telling of exactly what happened because it, the trauma blocks some of the memories. So there you go. Yet another one. Um, it's not all bad, of course, for Egg on the Third. He does have some happy moments. Um, here's a quote that builds up to this happy moment. Though only nine at the time, Egon came from a long line of warriors and heroes and had been raised on stories of their bold deeds and daring exploits, none of which included fleeing from a battle whilst abandoning your little brother to death. Yeah, so... In terms of his heritage, it's it's a moment, it's a matter of guilt and of not living up to expectations. In terms of on a personal level, it's this, it's similar. Uh, it, it has nothing to do with expectations. It's just hey, I abandoned my brother. But Aegon the Third was so happy when he found out his brother was actually alive. Understandably so. Just oh my god, all this guilt is lifted. It wasn't you know I, I I'm not responsible for this after all. Maybe I could have done more, but it didn't result in my brother dying. Blah blah blah. It's all great. It's a big moment of happiness in a sea of, of awful things for him and uh, someone to spend time with. That makes his life better from that point on because he has his brother to hang out with. Uh, whereas before he had Gaiman and that's about it. So he was kind of lonely. Now he has a, now he has a buddy uh, or a second buddy. Well, Gaiman dies later. So he goes back to being his only buddy, perhaps. Now, con contrast this to John. Don't you think John is just going to just flip out in happiness when he finds out Rickon's actually alive? When he finds out Bran's alive, that might be a little different. That might be a little bittersweet because Bran being alive comes with all these caveats. So that's a little harder to figure. But 
But then Ari also, he's going to find out Ari is alive. That may come with some caveats too. But bottom line, finding out that all these family members he thought were dead or worried that they're dead is going to be huge for him. It's going to, we're going to see John happy for, it's going to be one of the rare times we've seen John happy. However, how happy will he be? He's going to have this trauma of being dead, of being wolfish or whatever, which is hard to predict, casting a shadow over whatever this happiness might be. So it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to see exactly. Now, by the way, this is a parallel I sort of left out, sort of on purpose from last week. The comparison of Davos to Alan Oakenfist includes this, which we, which we touched on quite a bit. But this one factor, I don't know if I mentioned, which is that they're both the person to recover the heir for this Jon Snow egg on the third figure. Uh, they're the one who, who does the actual mission to bring the kid back in secret in both cases, because no one knew Alan Oakenfist was coming back with with Viserys, and uh, Davos's mission is also a secret. Only, only Manderly and Glover know about it, maybe one or two other people. But the parallel goes even deeper than this, if you can believe it. We have the recovery of Viserys didn't come with just Viserys, right? It came with a foreign element coming to court, which was unpopular, very unpopular with many in the establishment. They did not like the Lyseni, they did not like their gods. They did not like their language. They did not like how ambitious they were. They didn't like how they were getting elected and put into all these positions of authority. They didn't like that giant of a man, Sandok the Shadow. Now think about John being elected Lord Commander. We talked about the same thing. They didn't like, they didn't see to his authority fully. They were kind of, uh, they, they, they challenged him on a lot, of, a lot of accounts. They argued with him on a lot of things. They, they backed off a bit when he executed Slint, which... You know, maybe that's a little bit like the executions during the Hour of the Wolf, but but probably not. It makes me think of it anyway. But the foreign element thing, that has a huge parallel, which is John's closeness with the wildlings. His closeness with his, quote, wildling woman really seems familiar to Aegon's brother's marriage to Lara Rogare, who they really didn't like at all. Uh... And think of all the resentment of the wildlings, which is very similar to the resentment of the Lyseni. Um, get, Leathers gets the job of master at arms compared to Moreto Rogare, who's this, this great Lysteni warrior who was every inch the Valyrian warrior, even with his Valyrian steel blade. But he doesn't speak common. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, even, uh, even Sandok, who has a lot more Sandor vibes than, uh, say, 1 1 vibes, even the Wildlings have a giant or several giants. So there's a little bit of that vibe as well. You get this sort of scary big dude that comes with them. So we've even got a we've even got a good piece of art here uh, of Sandok as we segue into the next section. I think this art's a little funky actually because because Sandok is supposed to be dark skinned and you can see this guy's hands and they look light colored, but eh, he's mostly just covered anyway. But boy, he's he's a bit wider than I imagined when I was first reading about him. That is a huge person. <laughs> Real quick, just for fun, I'll I'll throw out the Sandok Sandor parallels besides the obvious name similarity. You got you got uh, the um, Sandok can't speak, and uh, Sandor is currently on the quiet aisle. Mm, yeah, so uh, taking a, maybe taking a vow of silence. Um, you have the size, of course. You have the, the horrific facial wounds. Uh, Sandok has all these scars, and his, his lips removed, and of course Sandor has his burns. And you have this uh, being a protector to um, a girl. Uh, sort of thing going on where Sandor is sort of protecting Arya and maybe will protect Sansa and sort of 
was around her a lot earlier. So you have Sandok with uh, his her his main job is protecting Lara Rogari. So yeah, so that fits pretty well. And um, the the parallel has another small feature here, which is that the Lyseni also, their money was a big deal as they were lending money to people and buying people and bribing people. And the, even the Iron Throne took a big loan from them, which John took a big loan from the Iron Bank. <laughs> and that did the same, it had this the same problem. It put them kind of in the, in the power of a, of a foreign uh, element, uh, a foreign, a debt to a foreign nation, basically. And of course, in this, in the case of the Rogares, it all ended up being Bravosi anyway. The Rogari bank collapsed and all that debt was given back to Bravos. So the Iron Bank got its due, uh, in both cases here. I assume they'll get their due from, from John or from the Watcher, whoever sits the Iron Throne later. That's going to be a thing. It's going to, it's a, it's a plot that's still ongoing. The Bravosi and the Iron Bank and the Faceless Men, whatever role they have in there. So, and of course, the Faceless Men were probably the ones who killed the two top Rogare. Uh, right at the mo- right at the same moment there. So dripping with more parallels. <laughs> Did you ever think you'd see the Lyseni and the Wildlings paralleled like this? Well, here we are. It fits. Fits really well. So let's go to the Secret Siege. Uh, that is the incident where Aegon and Viserys and Lara and Sandok and a few other people were holed up in the Red Keep, refusing to come out, while. All sorts of, well, his counselors were engaging in all sorts of chicanery, which included, uh, had previously included trying to poison, um, well, probably trying to poison Daenerys and or Viserys, but, well, not Daenerys, probably trying to pair, uh, poison Daenerys and maybe Aegon, but probably not Aegon because Aegon, you don't poison sweet things when you want to kill a guy who doesn't eat dessert. That, and that's what was poisoned, the sweet things. So there's a little, uh, it, it definitely seems like the, the target was Denera, which makes sense because Unwin Peak was still trying to mar- get his daughter married to, to the king. Um, by the way, uh, that fits pretty well here as well um, with the, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself, back up. <clears throat> So let's talk about the secret siege here. We have them hold up in their siege. They have, there's like maybe 17, 20, 25 people in there. Not very many. But uh, now here's where I have to give a slight warning about the TV show. It's a very mild TV show spoiler. But if you want to avoid TV show spoilers, maybe want to skip ahead about a minute. Not very much. Just a minute. In the show, after John is killed, they hole up with his body and there's a kind of a miniature siege, right? There's the Alfred Thorne and the other guys are, are yelling, hey, come out. We're not going to hurt you. You're still brothers of the Night's Watch. And that's exactly what the the counselors are, various different counselors, including Graceford and Amory Peak and Marston Waters are all just telling, hey, Aegon, we're not going to hurt anybody. We're not going to hurt your wife. We're not going to hurt any of them. Just bring them out and we'll just, you know, why are you hiding? <laughs> you know, we're not going to hurt you. And that's really similar to what happens on the, in that basic thing in the TV show where they're kind of, uh, they kind of have a standoff. And so it's, it's a, a bit of the same, a bit feels very similar. Now, um, part of the, what Aegon the third is refusing to do is giving up his brother in Lara Regard because he believes there's great danger to them. Um, so that might be, we might get something similar to that. Maybe this is just John holding the wall against the wildling. Maybe that's a better parallel, but yeah, but I really wonder because the scene with 
where Sandok the Shadow fights off the men who they finally say, okay, we're going to attack. We're going to send these men at you. You got to surrender or we're going to attack you. One thing that gets me about this is just how how much this gives me a vibe of some future battle that hasn't come yet. First of all, m- many people before me and many people after me are going to talk about how the Kingsguard have some serious White Walker vibes with their childlessness, their no family, their utter devotion to duty. That's the they don't always are they're not always so utterly devoted to duty, but they're supposed to be. Um, the all white is a big one, of course. That's the, the most glaring physical similarity, and. Well, in this case, uh, you have a major White Walker vibe because not only is Amory Peak the King's Guard uh, in charge of these guards, he sends them all ahead and stands back and watches while they fight Sandok, which really seems like a White Walker sending a bunch of uh, whites at their target. And so, and and Sandok is sitting on the uh, this drawbridge fighting them by himself. Wielding Valyrian steel, mind you. Hmm? That's important. And just to give it even more of a White Walkers versus humans vibe. And he's dressed in in black. Uh, well, he's maybe not dressed in black, but his sword is black. His shield is black. It's Nightwood. <laughs> Nightwood. <laughs> Nightwood, man. That's just over, well, that's just on the nose there. I mean, what doesn't that make you think of the the walkers, the white walkers versus the brothers in black? I mean, come on, that's just so on the nose. Uh, and one part that puzzles me though about this this incident is the axe. Viserys throws his axe into the ground and says, "If you cross this point, you know none of you are gonna, you're going to die. Anyone who passes this axe is going to die." And Sandok kills Amory Peak with the axe. He loses his Valyrian steel blade and kills Amory Peak, who in this, if we're doing the parallel here, Amory Peak would be the White Walker in this case. Kills him with this big axe. So I'm not really sure what that's telling us. So chat, go go nuts. Maybe y'all can figure it out. Maybe maybe y'all at least have some ideas. I'm not really sure about that. But it's it's interesting to think about. And of course, given all the other White Walker vibes that we get from some of the Kingsguard and scenes like this. Now, what about the actual, the fact that we're standing over a moat here, a dry moat? This battle happens on a drawbridge. Michael, the closest thing I can think of to that is, well, there's the the west of the wall is the gorge, which is, there's the bridge of skulls, which is uh, not, the wall doesn't cross this. It's just a big bridge. Uh, that's I guess it's kind of narrow. That earlier we hear, hear that Bowen Marsh took a wound in his head because he and his men uh, drove off the Weeper. The Weeper tried to cross there and failed. So I wonder if this is we're thinking of that now. Uh, yeah, I'm not really clear on that. It, 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 that's the that's the closest thing I could think of. I'm not sure if that's our parallel, but uh, it could be. It could be. Oh yeah, actually, you know what? I actually have the quote here. From Sandok and his weapon. Here we go. That night, his chosen instruments were a tall black shield of nightwood, boiled hide and iron, and a great curved sword with a dragon bone hilt whose dark blade shone in the torchlight with the distinctive ripples of Valyrian steel. So it even has a dragon bone hilt like this, like the cat's paw dagger, um, which, you know, we've kind of thought the cat's paw dagger is a parallel to Dark Sister TV versus. And uh, yeah, so that, that could be a thing. And. As we also know, a key key thing here is this overthrow, this attempted overthrow of Aegon III is defeated. Just as the overthrow of Jon will probably de- be defeated. And the, the people that did it, again, sorry, minor TV spoiler here, the, the, but very vague. The people who tried to overthrow Jon were punished. So 
I'm trying to avoid the spoilers by not saying who those people were. They were, or what their punishment was. But they were punished. And I think that's probably not unlikely to happen in the books as well. And did happen here in the Egg on the Third Parallel. Ah, super chats. Two super chats from LML. The first one is of his standard 666. He says, sorry, I'm late as east. Your laugh is the wind beneath my wings. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> not everyone feels that way about my laugh. So thanks for that. Uh, he also says, more on topic, think about the other dreamers, quote unquote, other dreamers impaled on ice spikes or ice spires in Bran's dream. So he suggests, he says, uh, George uses the moat spikes to imply the fallen Kingsguard as others. Hmm. Ah, I like it. That works pretty well. That's really good. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, that may require further thinking, but I think you may have, uh, I want to say nailed it, but we'll say you spiked it. <laughs> Here's yet another one. You thought we were probably running out, but we're not. Here's another one. Shea is going to bring up a piece of art of uh, Aegon Third here working with the sick, right? So you see him working with people who are afflicted by the winter fever. Now, on the surface, that's going to be more of a Danny vibe, right? Because Danny does this, literally goes out amongst the afflicted and is not afflicted herself. However... John is probably going to be faced with this as well, because we have been blowing the grayscale horn as loudly as anyone in the fandom for a, a plot that's coming. And so John dealing with infected people, it could absolutely happen that grayscale is all around him and he deals with it. And if he's dead, well, he is dead. Think about that as a twist for immunity to disease, right? Like is bacteria going to infect your dead blood cells? Like, how does that work? So I, I kind of feel like John's going to be immune to any disease uh, going forward. And uh, he may have already been immune to, you know, the basic diseases that Targaryens are semi-immune to. And that's interesting in and of itself because, well, skipping ahead a little bit, Aegon III died of tuberculosis. Consumption. It says consumption, but that's tuberculosis. Which is strange because we got that, we're told very clearly in that episode on disease where we covered the winter fever and the shivers and some other things that tar there's, there's this distinct history of Targaryens as set down by the maesters not dying from diseases like that, like tuberculosis. Um, the only examples of, of real disease of death from Targaryens dying diseases like these plagues, like really heavy plagues. Or... You know, stuff that comes during the later No Magic era, which is what is being entered to by the end of Aegon III's life, right? The, the magic is maybe dying off. Maybe that's why the dragons died or maybe vice versa. That's a discussion for another time. But either way, the fact that Aegon died of a non, of a disease that isn't supposed to aff afflict Targaryens, in a way, that's like the ultimate rejection of his Targaryen heritage, which is kind of... Uh, the big part of our last run here through these parallels. So let's talk about some of that as we go forward here. He doesn't think of himself as fit to rule. Aegon Third, that is. Well, both of them, <laughs> in fact. That's how this works. That's how these parallels work. Here's a quote. Down deep, the broken king felt himself unworthy to sit the Iron Throne. Had he not been able to save his brother, his mother, or his little queen from grisly deaths, or he had not been able to save his brother, his mother, or his little queen from grisly deaths, how could he presume to save a kingdom? Yeah, when he attended council, Peak resented it and mistrusted him. This is more of these cat vibes. And you'll see that here. And, and I hesitate to compare Catelyn Stark to Catelyn Tully to Unwin Peak. It's purely the way 
these kids felt in their presence. Their personalities have nothing in common beyond this. So, John, so think about it. Here's another quote. This one's from John, and it includes this Catelyn stuff. Questions of worthiness plague Jon Snow as well. And there was someone who didn't want him around either. Cat. Quote, he sat on the bench and buried his head in his hands. Why am I so angry? He asked himself. But it was a stupid question. Lord of Winterfell. I could be the Lord of Winterfell, my father's heir. This is right after Stannis makes the offer to make him Lord of Winterfell. The quote continues. It was not Lord Eddard's face he saw floating before him, though. It was Lady Catelyn's. With her deep blue eyes and hard, cold mouth, she looked a bit like Stannis. Iron, he thought, but brittle. Actually, that, that's White Walker vibes right there, really. <laughs> deep blue eyes, hard, cold mouth. The quote continues. She was looking at him the way she used to look at him at Winterfell. Whenever he had bested Rob at swords or sums or most anything, who are you? That look had always seemed to say, this is not your place. Why are you here? His friends were still out in the practice yard, but John was in no fit state to face them. He left the armory by the back, descending a steep flight of stone steps to the wormways, the tunnels that linked the castle's keeps and towers below the earth. So he goes down under the earth while he's thinking about his heritage here. <laughs> Crypt's vibe. It was a short walk to the bathhouse where he took a cold plunge to wash the sweat off and soaked in a hot stone tub. The warmth took some of the ache from his muscles and made him think of Winterfell's muddy pools steaming and bubbling in the godswood. Winterfell, he thought. Theon left it burned and broken, but I could restore it. Surely his father would have wanted that, and Rob as well. They would never have wanted the castle left in ruins. You can't be the Lord of Winterfell. You're bastard-born, he heard Rob say again. And the Stone Kings were growling at him with granite tongues. You do not belong here. This is not your place. When John closed his eyes, he saw the heart tree, with its pale limbs, red leaves, and solemn face. The Werewood was the heart of Winterfell, Lord Eddard always said. But to save the castle, John would have to tear that heart up by its ancient roots and feed it to the Red Woman's hungry fire god. I have no right, he thought. Winterfell belongs to the old gods. Really powerful quote there. And uh, it, it contains a lot of the things we've talked about in this episode. Just his, his worthiness, his own sense of himself, his relationship to Catelyn, and his relationship to the gods. All these things come up. And for Aegon Third, we don't get his thoughts. So we don't have POV of him. So we can't, we don't have this level of detail. And it wouldn't make sense for us to, not just because of the POV style, but because he was a very personal, closed up guy. He's not here telling the maesters his innermost thoughts for them to record for posterity. So we just have to make some assumptions. And given all this, it seems like assuming that a lot of this was similar for John works really, really well. Now, an issue for Aegon III was the succession. That was a big part of the, the problem his councils were working on. They, they weren't happy that he married Daenera because it meant the succession would be delayed even longer because they were both too young to have kids. That issue was cleared up by Viserys' return. They, they, all of a sudden, he has an heir. Uh, that could be a problem that's resolved in a similar way in A Song of Ice and Fire as well. John, if he is made king of the north, who will his heir be? Well, that could be resolved by the return of Rickon. And we have a parallel here as well. Who is kind of running the North from behind the scenes as sort of a regent-like figure trying to restore the dynasty? Wyman Manderley. And who is a regent at the end of Aegon III's minority? Torin Manderley, who is a large man, almost certainly the ancestor to Wyman Manderley. So... I wonder how that will go for John. Whether, you know, Rickon will be an option. Maybe Rickon dies and then he's not an option. And then you have maybe Bran, who's 
I don't know how you view Bran as an option. You can't really view him as an heir. I don't think people would accept him as an heir. And I don't think Bran wants to be the heir uh, because he can't procreate. But that brings up the other question. Is John going to be capable of procreating? Is that going to be an issue for him? Is he going to be unwilling or unable? Maybe both. Well, I guess unwilling doesn't matter if he's unable. And Daenerys, same problem. How about that? What, what an amazing thing that would be if the, this, this power couple, neither of them is, is capable of procreation. I don't even know what to call that. It's just... It would be something. <laughs> and the vibes are a little similar to Aegon III because he just didn't want to be touched. He didn't have kids for a long time. Just didn't procreate himself either. So, I don't know. That fits pretty well. It's not as tight, but it's, it's definitely there. So let's move on a little farther. Um, even if we think about later rain stuff, as I, 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 I may have pointed out earlier, I forget whether I said this or not, after the Regency... He sends Manderly home and he begins to enact his, <clears throat> you know, my, my, my policy will be full bellies and dancing bears, which by the way, dancing bears, Jorah, Jorah Mormont, uh, Gior Mormont, the Mormonts, John, eh, there might be something there. Probably not. Just throwing that out there. That's probably nothing. But there's a huge blank in most of his reign. Uh, we know a lot about the Regency. We know certainly about his early life, um, what was going on around, not his early life, but his, his time during the dance, his, say, preteen years. And, but later in life, we know almost nothing. We know he dies at age 36, which isn't very old, but he was king for a long time. And he had, did eventually grow comfortable with Daenerys and had five kids, as we mentioned back at the start. But, this is where we kind of come back to another interesting John and uh, John parallel with the descendants. Remember this quote? Remember Rob and Kat arguing over er the situation of heirs? Precedent, she said bitterly. Yes, Aegon IV legitimized all his bastards on his deathbed. And how much pain, grief, war, and murder grew from that? I know you trust John, but can you trust his sons or their sons? The Blackfire pretenders troubled the Targaryens for five generations until Barristan the Bold slew the last of them on the Stepstones. If you make John legitimate, there is no way to turn him bastard again. Should he wed and breed, any sons you may have by Jane will never be safe. So Rob rejects this argument, but okay, John's parallel being Aegon the Third. Who is Aegon the Third's grandson? Damon Blackfire. <laughs> By the way, this quote from Catelyn is the first ever mention of the Blackfires in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And they were referred to before. I mean, very early in Jon's arc, there's the mention of Aemon the Dragon Knight and Aegon the Unworthy and the question of parentage there. So that's been there. But the story, as the story was fleshed out, those, there were more names given. The Blackfires were created. That, that was filled out. So... That's his own grandson, though, Aegon, the uh, Aegon III's grandson is Damon Blackfire. So that's pretty funny. That Catelyn's point, where she uses Damon Blackfire as the example, <laughs> is exactly what happens to our Jon Snow parallel, Aegon III. And it's Jon's, it's, uh, the parentage breaks down like this. Aegon's uh, daughter, Dana, eldest daughter, Dana, is, of course, the daughter of Damon Blackfire, and she refuses to name the father, but we know it's Aegon the Unworthy, who is Aegon III's nephew, because that's Viserys's kid. And, in fact, uh, Aegon was older than any of Aegon III's kids, because Viserys had kids with Lara before Aegon had kids with Daenerra. Something else must have changed in later life for him, because 
he backed off a bit on his dragon trauma. He went from not even wanting Viserys's egg around to nor being nor being willing to be in the presence of Reyna's dragon mourning to eventually trying to hatch his own eggs. So something changed and it's all in, lost in the fog of, of unknown history that we'll get in Fire and Blood 2 because this is right where Fire and Blood 2 will pick up. But as of now, we just don't have anything. But it's, it's, it's pretty cool to think about the possibilities there. Now, there was some poison rumors uh, with regard to the last dragon, which is kind of neat. If you think about the last dragon and the dragon bane, that whole concept of Aegon III oversaw the death of the last dragon. Well, who was commonly referred to as the last dragon in A Song of Ice and Fire prior to the start of the books? Rhaegar. Rhaegar is the last dragon. Sure, there were other Targaryens. There was Daenerys, obviously, and there's Viserys. But people were calling Rhaegar the last dragon even when Ares was, was alive because, or sort of in, sort of in retrospect, it's a little romanticized, but, but he, you know, he at least had courage. He, you know, setting aside what he did with Lyanna, he, he was at least a brave guy and took things seriously. Uh, he was certainly a better dude than, than Ares or Viserys, that's for sure. And I think that's kind of neat that he's kind of, we have this last dragon terminology floating in both of their stories as yet another parallel. And, uh, you know, I don't think John's eventually going to try to hatch dragons like Aegon III did. But this whole rumor of poisoning fits with both because we have the uh, we have this parallel to to uh, the poisoning of Aegon Aegon's people and the poisoning of these dragons, which is uh, maybe uh, a thing that happened. We don't know whether the Maesters really did that or it's unclear. But what I do think is interesting, by the way, is an aside that that last dragon, the stunted dragon, actually managed to lay five eggs. It had its its growth was all messed up, but it still was able to almost procreate. The eggs didn't hatch, but you know, they were, they weren't, they weren't sickly eggs. They were normal formed eggs. So anyway, so we're, um, we're about wrapped up here. I want to throw up a few other things. Like, uh, there's a few questions that are still lingering. Obviously John, so much is going to come out with John in the next few books that we're going to be able to look back and say, Oh, that was a parallel too. Oh, that was a parallel too. We just don't know where some of these things are going to be because John's story is, is far from over. Um, a couple other questions, though, that are not directly related. You know, things I'm looking forward to with the, learning the rest of Aegon the Second or Aegon the Third's reign, like what happens to Unwin Peak, what happens to his sword un Orphan Maker that used to belong to House Roxton, what happens to Alice Rivers. My favorite current theory on Alice Rivers is that uh, the dragon she made is is a glamour, which would be a little more even more Melisandre vibes, uh, but. We'll talk about that when we get to it. That's going to be probably in two weeks. And then, um, yeah, what, what what about growing up with Aegon the Unworthy and Aemon the Dragon Knight and Princess Nerys? What about that? What was Aegon III's life was that like? What about raising Daron the Young Dragon? Uh, that's, a, that's a strange vibe, right? Because Daron the Young Dragon is obviously a great parallel to Rob Stark's. you got a, a John parallel having a Rob parallel as his kid. So that, that creates all sorts of interesting uh, potential for fun analysis. And uh, we're going to be wondering about Viserys and Lara. We know Lara Regari goes back to Lice or to Lys um, and leaves Viserys and, and their kids, which is which really kind of broke him a bit and 
turned him a bit, it sort of led him into becoming a bit like Tywin. It started him on that uh, that track in a lot of ways. And of course, not having their mother was a big deal for Aemon the Dragon Knight, Nerys, and Aegon the Unworthy. Uh, probably more for Aegon than the others because uh, the other two were too young to even remember her, uh, which may explain a bit about his character, but certainly not all. You can't explain all of that just by the mother not being there. All right, so feel free to throw out some more questions in the chat here, last-minute questions, but I'm going to start working my way into our into our outro stuff. But I hope I've uh, hope I convinced you that the that Aegon the Third is Jon Snow. I, I, I like I said, I was blown away by how many parallels I kept finding, and honestly, at least two of the parallels I listed during this live stream, I I, I thought of in the moment. <laughs> so that's that's part of why I'm just so sure there's more, because if I'm thinking of them. At six in the morning yesterday, or this morning, really, 12 hours ago, I'm still thinking of them. They're still popping in my head. And now, like literally 20 minutes ago, there's got to be more. So I look forward to returning to this topic at some point in the distant future. Uh, maybe just uh, as an aside here and there in future live streams, we'll maybe come up with an additional tidbit here and there, maybe from feedback from you guys. Or uh, if not then, then definitely after the Winds of Winter comes out, and we can look back and find a lot more juicy parallels. We're gonna we're gonna be like we're gonna find a few that we were like, oh, that was so there. We should have seen that sooner. Which is what I say a lot about, about a lot of these, because it's not like this is all that new. The Fire and Blood stuff is new, but a lot of this egg on the third stuff we already knew from the World of Ice and Fire. We already knew from the Princess and the Queen. Yet this giant, overwhelming parallel has largely been treated with, mm, I'd say, less emphasis than it probably should. So I hope this is the start of the fandom realizing that this is a much tighter parallel than even I thought it was before we really took a long look. So thanks, everybody, for coming. Thank you for coming to the live stream, for upvoting, for sharing, for talking about it with your friends. And, of course, we hope to see you all tomorrow for our live stream covering the trailer and for the return of Sean. And of course, we'll also have Lady Gwen. So let's say also th big thanks to Ashea for running things behind the scenes, even while not at 100%. And <laughs> you hope you guys heard that. She said, thanks. <laughs> She's thanking herself. <laughs> and of course, I want to thank Michael Klarfeld for the maps and the video intro, thanks to uh, artist Doug Wheatley, we keep uh, referring to his art from Fire and Blood. It's, it's really good stuff, even though we occasionally have our nitpicks about specific character details. That doesn't mean we don't think the art's amazing. It's amazing. It's not his fault if the, de the, the descriptions weren't perfect for what he was supposed to draw. I don't think he had the whole text to read to, to get all these details. So we can't blame him for everything. Anyway, super thank... Chat. Oh, there's a super chat. Okay, so pardon my interrupting the uh, outro while I answer this question here. From Mod Mary one do you think that Rhaegar's plan was for Arthur Dane to raise his baby and not Ned Stark? Hmm. I do not know what Rhaegar's plan was. I don't think it was... I don't think Rhaegar's plan was for Arthur Dane to raise the baby. I don't think that. Um, I think that he believed that Jon would be king. Um... Uh, he may have been fooling himself in that regard, but maybe not because, you know, he didn't know at this point, he doesn't know Robert's going to become king. He doesn't know Robert hates all Targaryens and has this uh, kind of 
overwhelming hatred of, of, of all things Targaryen, unreasonable hatred of Targaryen. He didn't know that. But it's also at the same time, I, really, I don't think he would put that on a Kingsguard. He would put that on a Kingsguard to keep him safe until the right things could happen. Um, but he also wouldn't have expected Lyanna to die. Uh, he didn't expect he was going to die. I don't think, Rhaegar didn't think he was going to die. That's another important point here. Rhaegar thought he was going to live through the Battle of the Trident and then come back and make changes. I think he thought he was going to usher his own son's reign in. Uh, I think he thought it would be kind of a peaceful transfer of power. So Rhaegar, uh, on one hand, was very wrong about all that. On the other hand, how could he... You know, he's dealing with prophecy, so, and we don't know exactly what prophecies he's looking at. So, yeah, Rhaegar is weird to me. I understand a lot of people's desire uh, or conclusion that he was, you know, thinking too much with his dick and uh, just being kind of a screw up. And I lean that way for sure. But I do not go the 100% on that either. I'm, I'm just as certain that we shouldn't be certain because... There's so much yet to be revealed about what was motivating him that we don't know. Um, anyway, we will learn about that eventually, I, I assume. One thing I forgot to mention, too, is that our uh, I mentioned it last week that our Blood Raven 3 episode is in progress for being in production, according to Zach. It's very close now, so uh, maybe by the time some of you guys get this in the podcast version, it'll already be out. But we'll see. We'll see. I will make no promises. Just soon-ish. So, uh, time to thank the patrons. Thanks to R.I.P. Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, Rider of Mazalacartho, White Dragon with Green Scales, Horns, Wings, and Talons, and Jinx of House Lier, Green Queen of the Rainwood, Rumored Daughter of a Woods Witch, Rider of Erogenia, a Sylphic Albino Dragon with Amethyst Eyes and Opalescent Wings. Thanks to the Mysterious B.R., Hand of the King. Thanks to the Smiling Wolf, Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower, Soldier, Scholar, Philosopher, Diplomat, Hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best. Sitting right over there. <laughs> Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fireblog is Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath is of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet led by flagship Prince Damon. Our small council includes Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Grand Maester Via James, Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Lord Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, Master of Coin, Lord Johan of House Orcos, called Shadowhawk, Master of Whispers. Our lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyrlis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Donhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, Dual Wielder of Valyrian Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Lightwise, a Sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow, Todd Von Oben. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, Last Scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolf's Wood is First Forester of the Old Gods, Listen, uh, Sworn to House Ironwood, Ironwarewood, Listen for the Silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. 
Lady Baelish is Dark Moon of Harrenhal. Lord Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of Bruce Nevesa the Twinhearted is a suspected skin changer holder of Castle Carahelm. Sir Valentin of House to Jen is creator of the Game of Predictions, free Game of Thrones Predictions Futures Market. Lady Liana Kelly of Wolf, Wolf Island is protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Kay of House Archer is Lady of Earth Dog Hall, Huntress of the Wolfswood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrel's Bane, the Mighty Direweenie. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Queen's High Council includes Buddy, Buddy, Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whisperers, Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the shadows we bear our claws. And Grand Maester M. Elizabeth, middle daughter of Lyanna Mormont, first lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link. Our King's Guard is led by Lord Commander Miriam R., backed up by Sir Dolorous D., longest tenured White Sword. Willa Crowsbane, Guardian of the White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk. Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star. Sir George of House Pepsi is the Beverage Knight. Gregor Snow is called Snow Bear, a bastard of Winterfell. Our Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander Helma Helmont, the Sellsword Sentinel. Backed up by Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune, I must not fear, fear is the mind killer. Becca the Bard is Songbird of the North. Michonne the Melodious is Star of Old Town, Minds Over Masters. Sir Rambo is Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Sir Leon of House Walker is wielder of the Twin Valyrian Steel Blades, Fire and Ice, and the Werewood Bow Rain. Amber the Adamant is the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids. The Beard Guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed up by Sir Joshua Oakhart the White Oak, Lady Rita the Copper Mane the Unbound, Dance the Fervor. Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, is wielder of Triad, the multifaceted bleared, bleared, <laughs> multifaceted beard of platinum, red, and brown. Stay frosty. Sir Tim Corgile is Mad Boy of the Western Desert. Queen Helena von Lanstein is partying like it's 1999 since 1980-something, a kingdom for a drink. And finally, our History of Westeros Night's Watch, led by Lord Commander Benjenumber, the Silent Giant, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Winter's Kiss. First builder, Magor Snow, is aka Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow. First steward, Sir Jurion of the Torrentines, called Pale Wind. And first ranger, Source Delica of House Gramercy is last, but not least. Thanks again, everybody. We'll be back next week with another live stream and back tomorrow with our season eight coverage beginning. Uh, so for you, tomorrow may not mean tomorrow, depending on when you're listening to this. So we'll just say Wednesday, February 6th. Sorry, March 6th. <laughs> Wednesday, I can't get this right. Wednesday, March 6th begins our season eight coverage as well. So, until then, till next time, Valar Reredus.